This episode is sponsored by our friends at Devlin McGregor Pharmaceuticals. Nice. Founded in 2009 by world-renowned doctors James Devlin and Owen McGregor, Devlin McGregor endeavors every day to create a safer, healthier planet and in the people who call it home. With over 1,000 scientists and biomedical engineers worldwide, Devlin McGregor leads the fight against chronic and acute diseases, impacting both your family and mine. Devlin McGregor are the creators of the exciting new product, Provasic. This groundbreaking formula is unlike anything else in the therapeutic marketplace. Provasic single-handedly shifted the paradigm for all non-statin, anti-cholesterol, blood lipoproteins, a drug that efficiently and wonderfully harmonizes with your body's built-in immune system. Gone are the days of potentially harmful side effects, costly liability exposures, and potential death. Jeez. Their new Humanless Manufacturing Protocol, or HMP, completely removes the need for physically or virtually employed staff and their entire pharmaceutical production cycle. This enables them to deliver gold standard, low-cost drugs and therapeutics right to your front door. How about that? All performed with absolutely zero human oversight or pesky, troublesome governance. In fact, Dr. Devlin describes this new delivery system as a metabolic HOV lane. This award-winning, employee-owned corporation has enormously evolved from the days of the less-than-acceptable activities that darkened Devlin McGregor's reputation in the biosciences, pharmacological research, and manufacturing sectors. Today, the Devlin McGregor team stands at the ready to battle real-world complications such as narcotic abuse, patient product tampering, and occasional rectal bindings. Devlin McGregor, they're not just a pharmaceutical manufacturer. They're your partner to a stronger, healthier, more sustainable you. Humanless manufacturing protocol. Just doesn't sound legal. Are you suggesting that I killed my wife? You saying that I crushed her skull and that I shot her? How dare you? When I came home, there was a man in my house. I fought with this man. Uh He had a mechanical arm. You find this man. You find this man. How tall is he? Everything from me. Oh, Jesus. What what do you weigh? God! What color was his hair? What color were his eyes? Jim, I am not disappointed. You're uh, sitting here tonight. Nobody can see you, but I can. You've got the, I guess that would be the Illinois State Penitentiary Orange Prison Fatigues. Well, first off, I owe you some apologies. So I did not have a dress rehearsal. So if my voice sounds strained, I can't really move my mouth very much in this fake Richard Kimball beard, which doesn't look anything like Richard Kimball. I feel like it looks more like Brawny, like the Brawny Man, but maybe I'll post a photo underneath when you drop the podcast. Secondly, I want you to tell me what's wrong with this costume for us celebrating the fugitive. First of all, the Brawny Man is a great call. Uh, that is exactly what that fake beard looks like. And I do hope that you take it off soon because I can't imagine it's for, oh, it's coming off right now. There it goes. Oh, God, it's so freeing. What is wrong with the costume? The only thing I could think of is... It's major. The color orange is a little off from what he wears in the movie. He wears more of like a yellow. It's a, it's bright canary yellow. And Amazon could not get it to me 
for we're we're filming this on on uh, 9/11. God bless America. Amazon could not get me the yellow until tomorrow. My well, tomorrow's not going to do me any good. So I had to go with the orange, but I was like I'm not going to live the lie. I'm not going to come on to this podcast talking about the fugitive and not let you know the, the color is wrong. Uh, we appreciate that. What do you? Uh, uh, what was the query in Amazon? What, what did you look up in Amazon? I typed in yellow, um, yellow inmate costume, <laughs> and they had they literally had twelve different colors. And orange, orange. I guess orange must be very popular because I guess most inmate car, you know costumes are orange. So orange very popular. They were able to get it to me, but yellow they need a couple more days. So I had a, I had to improvise. The internet's a hell of a thing. So I have a couple of things I want to say. First of all, what a score that we got Devlin McGregor to sponsor this episode. I mean, that's a that's a big get, don't you think? That's fantastic. They're all about others. I want to give uh, a little shout out to my ad sales team for for we've been chasing down Provasic for quite some time. And it's awesome that we got them to sponsor tonight. And I need to give you the assist for the uh, for the sponsor script. Uh, that one might have been your handiwork, or maybe it was Brody's handiwork. I'm not sure. You tell me. I went to the Devlin McGregor website, and I don't know how long that website's been up. So a lot of that fodder I picked, I picked directly off their website. So I feel like there should be a co-writer credit sure. for some of that stuff. And I actually think I found rectal binding on there someplace. I don't think that came out of me. First of all, welcome back to the show. It's nice to see you. Uh, we had you on a couple months ago with Malone and Thompson. We talked about good, bad movies. Good, good conversation. I knew I was going to have you back in in, uh, in the fall because I've been circling this movie for quite some time because it's in an anniversary year. I want to paint a scenario for you, okay? Let's go. You live in the D.C. metro area. So picture yourself. You're uh, on a metro one night. It's late, really late. Sitting on the red line to Shady Grove. Doors are opening on the right side. Bing, bong. And there's nobody else on the car except for you. And then in walks Frederick Sykes from The Fugitive. He's played by the late Andreas Katasoulis, or somebody else walks in. It's the guy from Ghost, the get off my train guy, which I know oh, you're, yeah. you're, you're, get off my train, that guy, yeah. who's played by the late Vincent Chiavelli, who actually played Fredrickson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. Who, by the way, in 1997, Vanity Fair selected Chiavelli as one of the best character actors in America. So here's my question to you. Who would you rather not run into in this situation on a late night subway ride? Would it be Frederick Sykes in his trench coat or the whack job Fredrickson? <laughs> I guess I would say I would rather not run into the Fredrickson guy because he's just yell. He yells a lot. And I think that would be very scary late at night. Sykes, that though. Is, Sykes is a, that guy is, that guy's a little unstable. I mean, he kills, kills, he killed a cop. But I'm not a cop. Hopefully I'd be, I'd be fine. I don't know. That's interesting. I swear I think I saw the guy from Ghost um, when I went to Italy, the one and only time. Really? From afar, I didn't know his name. There was no internet back then. I didn't know what to yell out. I couldn't yell out guy from Ghost. I didn't. I wasn't off book. I couldn't yell script lines from Ghost. But I swear to God, I mean, there's no two people that look like that guy. Vincent Schiavelli doesn't really roll off the tongue too well, does no. it? No, no. And that's the second episode in a row that we've referenced the movie Ghost, which is really strange. Uh, Rob Bowen and I talked a little bit about that there in Roadhouse with Pat Sweezy, and then we just referenced it again. But as summer comes to a close, I've been wanting to kind of get back to some more serious, high-minded films, and that's what we're going to do this fall. And this is the first one out of the gate. So tonight, everybody, we are celebrating The Fugitive, which just had its 30th anniversary. I actually thought it was kind of weird as I revisited this, Jim. While I was doing research for The Fugitive, I was actually watching the Apple series Shrinking, 
which I know you and a few other people told me to watch, which um, you know features Harrison Ford. That's a show that I was very late to the party on. I want to say that that came out maybe in the spring or early summer. Um, I didn't get around to it right away, but man, what a nice little show that is. Really big fan of Shrinking. Funny, great writing, great performances. Doesn't ask anything of you. Yeah, it's good stuff. And then why didn't anybody tell me that Ted McGinley was in it and that he was like this great, like just this great throwaway husband character next door who gets all kinds of comic material. Fantastic. It seemed like they had him smaller in the first couple episodes. And then it seemed like the fan reaction was, hey, we like the guy. Was he was the guy from Love Boat? Get more Ted McKinley in. And all of a sudden, by the end, it's like, wow, they're really giving him some good scenes. They're giving him some good lines. The Fugitive. Huge deal when it came out. And I was thinking about this, that I think, I kind of think that maybe people forget how successful this movie was, both critically and commercially. Jim, it was the second highest grossing movie of 1993. Jurassic Park was number one that year, guys. But um I guess, I guess when I think about The Fugitive, I never really would have thought that that was the second highest grossing movie of 1993. That's just not something that would necessarily come to mind for a movie like this, but it was a huge deal. And we're going to talk about why it was. So I'd like to play the dad card on this podcast. And I think I've done it. I did it recently with Rob and I'm going to do it again with you right now because I just can't help myself. So this is, this is what I think (laughs) dad would say to you and me over the breakfast table, or even like as we're watching the fugitive in, in the living room, sitting on his couch, this is what he would say, Jimmy, this Richard Kimball guy, he really got fucked. <laughs> Another thing that he would say is this. Dennis, what's this guy's name? And I'd say Tommy Lee Jones. What else is he doing? And then he'd say, what else has he been in? What else has he been in, right? Right. And yeah. then he'd say to you, Jimmy, you just you can't survive a jump like that. That guy would die on impact. He would say, so, while the jump was happening, he'd say, and I quote, oh, Fungu, this guy. Dennis, <laughs> this guy, I think he's got to be 300 feet. There's no way that guy lives. This is bullshit. And then he'd say, play, play that back. Play, play that, that back. back. Just watch the movie. Roger, just watch the movie. And then he'd say at the end, after we were done, when, when, when the credits rise, he'd say something like, he'd stand up and he'd be like, oh, that's a very good movie. That's a good movie. And then he'd say, I'm going to bed. And then he'd say, don't stay up too late, is what he'd say. <laughs> Shut off the lights. Don't forget to turn off the lights. Every time. How accurate is all that about Raji? It's spot on. This is Raji's, this was Raji's kind of movie. You and I have seen a lot of movies together, but this was not one of them. Do you remember seeing this in 93 in the theaters? Like, do you remember it being like something special? I have gotten very bad in my memory when it comes to movies. Like I'll be at, I'm going to drop Todd Seahorn's name, but I'll say to Todd Seahorn at work, I'll be like, did you ever see something like, did you see movie X? And Todd will be like, dude, I saw it with you. And I'm like, I can't possibly, <laughs> like, I can't possibly remember who I was, where I was, what theater I saw it in. So, I mean, I, I'm definitely sure that I saw it, obviously, in the theater, but I don't know who my, my movie Entourage would have been in 1993, you said? Yep. When it came out? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I always have this memory of, of all the movies that you and I have seen together. I don't know why that, that sticks with me as, as easily as it does, but I mean, granted, you and I lived together for... I want to say five, six years in the, in the yeah. mid late nineties. So we saw a lot together and we've talked about that previously, but, and I can name a bunch of movies that I know I saw with you, but this was definitely not one of them. I had just graduated college a couple months before this movie opened. Um, I was still working at the movie theater for a couple more months, just making some extra money um, right before I started my first full-time job. And I, so I was at the theater when this movie opened, but I did see it there. And I remember the thing that stands out to me the most about the fugitive was that, 
the bus crash, the train sequence, which happens very early on in the movie, it's 15 minutes in, something like that. Um, I remember the entire audience, there was a round of applause, 15 minutes yeah. into this movie and sitting in the back as the usher, I couldn't believe that I had seen something like that because A, the scene's incredible, right? The whole sequence is amazing. But independent of what I just watched, the fact that people in the theater were clapping I mean, have you did you ever see that very often? That's not something that happens. Um, it it does not happen very often. A handful of times. I mean, I was trying to think. So maybe I mean Rocky. I think people had a, a pretty you know visceral uh, reaction to Rocky. I think Karate Kid's ending. Ooh. I think people kind of lost their shit. We can swear on this at sure. the end of Karate Kid. But other than that, one is the end of Dead Poet Society when uh, the boys all stand up on the desk and the whole oh, Captain, my Captain, my Captain. Um, having, having worked at the theater at that summer that brought the house down every single time, every single night, people, there was always a round of applause. It was incredible. It's just something you didn't see. And then even, um, and this isn't a movie that would come to mind for this, but when Harry met Sally, there was something about when that movie ended in most instances, when I was working there, standing in the back of the theater, people applauded almost every single night. Harry met Sally. Like the crystal running? Like which part? Just like the ending. It? Just the very, very ending. And it's just right before wow. you know, the credits come up. I think it was just one of those movies that people found so utterly satisfying that, um, again, maybe it's it, this is just a different time. And, you know, that's 1989 and we're not in 1989 anymore. So maybe no. just the, the mindset of, of movie going is different. But when I walked out of the theater, I don't feel like I saw an instant classic, but I did think that it was something special. I do remember that. I do remember really enjoying The Fugitive quite quite a bit. And I do feel like, you know, when I watched that bus and train crash, I knew that I was watching something pretty spectacular at that moment. And I guess I guess the applause sort of um, reflected that. But um, it's funny when you watch a scene like that, you don't realize that a scene like that is going to go down right in that moment as one of, you know, cinema's greatest action sequences. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And then the speech, like Gerard's speech, same thing. Like when you're watching it in the moment, it's it's a great performance by Tommy Lee Jones, but you don't realize that you're watching a sequence and a, and a speech that's going to go down and, and get quoted time and time again. That was one of the, the the first days of shooting. Did you read that? Is that the case? I mean, that's what I saw. It was one of the first things that they had him do, one of the first days of shooting. And he's like, they're like, just go ahead and do the speech right now. And then and they did it. And then it was like in the can and the whole thing. I thought that was kind of interesting. The Fugitive. It's based on the uh, the TV series that premiered on ABC on September 17th, 1963. Um, it is inspired by the real life story of a Cleveland neurosurgeon named Sam Shepard, who was arrested in 1954 for murdering his, his pregnant wife and ultimately exonerated. It's centered around Richard Kimball, played by David Jansen, who was a doctor convicted of murdering his wife. He escapes prison when a train taking him to death row derails. Throughout the four-season run of the show, Kimball attempts to track down a one-armed man he saw commit the crime while being pursued by a dogged police detective, Philip Gerard. The 1967 series finale was viewed by more than 78 million people. That's an insane number of people. I knew that it was a big deal at the end because he catches the guy at the end, right? Yeah. I've never watched one episode of it, but I remember mom and dad talking about it. I remember it being a big deal. The Fugitive was directed by Andrew Davis. He's a filmmaker that had not done a lot before this movie opened. He had, the only thing I remember him doing is he did a, um, he did two things. He did a Steven Seagal film called Above the Law. That was back when you and I would see Steven Seagal films. And I had a little quiz for you set up. I'm ready. Every Steven Seagal movie, it was always Steven Seagal is. Is blank for blank. I was going to see how many you can name. Do not look it up. I'm not Steven looking. Steven Seagal is. He's marked for death. Marked for death. 
I wrote, I've got a couple down here. You already said the first one. Above the Law was the first. I think that was the yes. first Seagal movie that ever came out. I don't have them in order. I just have a bunch of them. All right. He, this one you and I were huge fans of because we saw it at the AMC and Union Station. Uh, out for Justice. Out for Justice. He was out for a couple things. He was out for a kill. He was out, he was out of reach. He was out for justice. Steven Seagal is on deadly ground. He is on deadly ground. That's right. He was a dangerous man. And he's under siege. You said under siege. You said out for justice. Out for justice was the one that had that guy Richie that you and I were big fans of, right? The, the, that was the pies. That was Check the my pies. <laughs> Which one was that? Richie was like a gangster, and there was that scene when when Seagal goes into that bar. Remember, he goes into that pool hall, and he's, he he takes the cue the cue ball, and he wraps it in like a little thing. Yeah. And he's like he's like I know everybody in here is going to help me find Richie. Dad liked that movie too. Sure, he Jesus, sure did. This guy, he don't slow down. But it, yeah, so it's funny. Andrew Davis, the director of The Fugitive, he directed Above the Law, and he also directed Under Siege. Um, and it's interesting that he was handpicked by Harrison Ford after Ford saw his work directing Under Siege with Seagal and Tommy Lee Jones. It was him that said, I guess he was the one that went to the studio and said, this is the guy that we need to direct The Fugitive. You have a lot of clout, Jim, when you uh, watch a movie on a weekend and then you call Warner Brothers on Monday and say, hey, yeah. we found our director. It's nice. <laughs> it should always be so easy. The Fugitive was released on August 6th, 1993. I want to call out one thing that I thought was really interesting at that time in, with movie going in the summertime. Most major summer tentpoles, which this definitely was, most of those movies were usually released May through July. You know, And, and even like back in... The early 80s, I would say May wasn't even a thing. It was really more June and July. And then all of a sudden, May started becoming a thing. And now the movies always officially started in May. And it always sort of wrapped up at the end of July. You never saw big movies open in August. So there was only one other movie that came out before this one that had a huge opening. And that was Unforgiven which with Clint Eastwood and Gene Hackman, that came out the year before, 92. And that was an August release. And at the time, that was the biggest August opening in history until a year later when The Fugitive came out and that became the biggest one. So I, I looked this up, a couple of other August titles, Guardians of the Galaxy, thought that would make you happy. That was a, that was a big August title. Terrible movie. Inglorious Bastards came out in August. The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis, M. Night, you and I talked about that several months oh, yeah. back. That was a massive opening in August. And then the, um, the Michael Mann film with Tom Cruise, Collateral, was another noteworthy August title. Isn't that interesting, though, that they just didn't have movies like that back then that played in August? Yeah, and you would think that they would do that more now, right? But it's still not a big thing to have movies open in August, right? Yeah, every once in a while you get like a Guardians or you get a Sixth Sense. But I would say for the most part, the studios tend to look at August as the the month in the summertime where they kind of release horror movies and some of the stuff that they don't think is going to do as well as the titles that are going to open up in June and July. And usually I think the thought process was, is that screens are easier to get in August than they are in, you know, June and July. So that's why they, they wait to the end of the summer and the fugitive sort of bucked the trend and uh, talk about uh, a great example of a movie that really did well. Budgeted at $44 million. um, It grossed 24 million in its opening weekend, which isn't a huge number. But it spent six weeks at number one. The movie grossed $369 million worldwide in 1993. That is a huge, huge number. And that was the second highest grossing film of 1993. Did you know that Harrison Ford didn't think this movie was going to be any good? He was on the record. He felt this was going to be his Hudson Hawk. Like after it was in the can, he thought that or like before he started filming? I'm not exactly sure when the, you know, when the remark was made, if it was after production or if it was pre-production. Tommy Lee Jones 
thought this movie was going to mark the end of his career. Isn't that crazy? That's a little crazy. And he ended up winning the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for this performance. I think he was way off. Let's talk about the run that Harrison Ford was on at this stage of his career. Ten years prior, he was in Witness. 1985, he was in Witness, which I actually just watched again the other night. I was channel surfing and I came across it. Holds up quite nicely. 86, he does The Mosquito Coast which I think is one of those movies that nobody ever talks about. Probably not a lot of people saw it. Are you a big fan of that or no? I have not seen The Mosquito Coast in a very long while. Is it? Is it? Have you seen it recently? I mean, I own it, but it's been a few minutes since I've watched it. I can't say that I've watched it anytime recently, but probably one of the best Harrison Ford performances I think he's ever given. Does he have a wife in that movie? Who's the, who's the female in that movie? I believe his wife was played by Helen Mirren. Really? Pretty sure. Yeah. So 86, anybody that loves Harrison Ford, I would strongly suggest going back and revisiting the Mosquito Coast. Dark movie, um, same director as Witness, uh, Peter Weir. He did uh, Frantic in 88, which I want to say I probably saw once and never saw it again. Didn't like it then, although I was probably <laughs> 17 at the time. So I'm not sure if it's a movie that I would I would maybe appreciate today. 1988, Working Girl with Melanie Griffith and Sigourney Weaver, Mike Nichols film. 89, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He does Presumed Innocent a year later in 1990. Jim, you and I texted each other this summer about that. I recently watched that movie after they did that on the Rewatchables. Really good movie. Like, really good. John Spencer is in that movie. Everybody's in that movie. That scene where he's like, some days I figure that if they want the glass, they'll ask for the glass. But they never ask. (laughs) (laughs) I love that bit with the glass. It's a great movie. I thought Raul Julia was really terrific in that movie. And that's one of those movies where like at 19 years old, I watched it. I remember it was based on a popular book and everybody read that book. I read that book and I thought the movie was fine. I didn't, I wasn't blown away by it. But when I watched it a couple months ago, I I thought that movie was really, really solid. 91 regarding Henry. Anything that we want to add about that movie? I don't know. Maybe it was a miss. It's a swing and a miss. He tried something. He tried something different. Yeah, it just wasn't good. Then he does his first Jack Ryan movie. He does 1992's Patriot Games, does The Fugitive in 93, then closes out that run with 1994's Clear and Present Danger. Man, Jim, that's like, and I haven't even referenced like the Star Wars and indie movies that came before right. this this run, but isn't that a pretty phenomenal list of titles? Yeah, he was uh, he knocked out, what is there, There's, well, a dozen movies on that list. That's a, that's a lot of films. And then I, I scribbled down that, you know, three years later, he does Air Force One, which I remember being a big deal, you know, as far as the whole action film, you know, non-Indiana Jones, non-Han Solo thing. Air Force One was a big deal. Air Force One was probably sort of the, the last of the the Die Hard on a blank movies, right? I mean, let's think about that for a minute. You had Die Hard, you had, I mean, Under Siege was was basically Die Hard on a boat, right? They ran that uh, they ran that idea into the ground. Yeah, I think once they did Air Force One, um, that was probably the end of that of that concept. I'd say that was a pretty good movie. I I, I, that, I came across that a few months ago. I don't know. I, I wanted to like Air Force One more than I did. I think Oliver would like Air Force One. <laughs> you know, so like that's the kind of thing. Like when you watch a movie again and again and again, but then you bring it in for a thirteen year old. Yep. I mean, Oliver is so easy to please that I pop that in. He'll be like, that's a pretty good movie. He's like, pop up. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> hey, wait, uh, you guys watched First Blood the other day. How was that? He said that it was pretty good. He, um, I, couldn't get, I couldn't get a good read on him. He definitely, it held his attention and he didn't, he wasn't doing cartwheels. He did say, you know, at the end of it, as I knew he would. So how many of those movies are there? I'm like, there's a whole bunch. When, whenever you're ready. 
There's a whole bunch. I think one of wasn't like the the, the light the last Rambo movie, one of the last movies Popov ever watched. I believe that's the case. I was home with him that week. You strongly suggested that he watched it. Yeah, that summer of 2020, and I was spent a decent amount of time in Connecticut for a few weeks there, and I I remember he and I watching that last Rambo movie. I think that one's called Rambo Last Blood. Is that what it was called? The siege when they try to take him at his house. And yeah. The underground lair and there's tunnels and there's all that stuff. Yeah. So Oliver, he was a fan of it, though. You think he'll keep going? Is he going to watch Rambo 2 or no? I think he'll watch Rambo 2 and then we'll get a feel for it because Rambo 2 is a completely different movie, as you know. But, but he, has he watched The Fugitive? We watched The Fugitive together before you asked me to do this. I want to say we watched it back in early summer. Mary Lou was a big fan of The Fugitive. She thought that it would be a really good Friday night family movie. Uh, we watched it. We enjoyed it. But I also think, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, I think there's there's some slow parts in The Fugitive. I think that there's, you know, we, let's talk about it. But I think it's it's action, action, action. But when it's not, there's kind of some, there's some slow simmer scenes. But um, they enjoyed it. Yeah, I think all the like the Devil and McGregor stuff and the storyline with the doctors and, you know, all that stuff as the movie progresses. It's confusing. Yeah, well, a little bit of that for a kid, I would think, and probably just not yeah. that exciting either. And I, I would say that's partly why this movie is really interesting is, is the thinking man piece of it, which, which we're going to get into. I thought this the thing I would probably also ask you, like, do you think this movie resuscitated Tommy Lee Jones's career? Because, I mean, like I, I had to th- go back and take a look at it, but he had hadn't done like he was in JFK like two years before this. And I, which was a phenomenal film. And he, you know, that was an Oliver Stone movie, but I think he, you know, he obviously was an under siege. He played the bad guy in that. And that was a really crazy over the top performance. In my opinion, I'm not a big under siege guy, but then he did this. And then after this, I mean, he's in the client, which was a a John Grisham movie. He was in natural born killers. He was in Batman forever. And then he did men in black. I mean, small film, indie film, small film. Do you think that maybe the fugitive was like that, that point of pivot for him? I think it was. And, um, I, I underlined Batman forever in this list and I screwed up again. You know, what's in my mailbox right now, Mary Lou, cover your ears. If you're listening to this podcast. So I do click on a lot of things on my social media sites that I, I should not own, but slap, they came out with one of these like minted two faced coins where it's like the shiny on one side and it's like marred on the other side. So I bought this thing and I literally just before this podcast got a confirmation that it had been delivered. So it's on my property someplace. Come on. So when, when we wrap and like before I got on, I was like, God, I got to, when he gets to the Batman forever part of the podcast, cause I knew we would talk about him. I was like, I'm going to show him the coin. But of course I blew that just like I blew the orange. Cause I didn't have time to get the yellow. I want to talk a little bit about why I think this movie was so revered as it was. And what I will call the last great thinking person's action film. You know, 30 years later, I think this movie is really rare. And if you go back and look at the action films over the last 30 years that have been filmed since this movie, would would you think it's fair to say that not much compares? It's extremely fair to say. Boy, I wish it would come back around to movies like this, but I don't think they have their place in, in, in the theaters anymore. There was a period of time in the early mid nineties when I feel like we were treated to movies like this. And I think the fugitive was probably the greatest example of that, but this is back when Tom Clancy was, was a kind of a big author. A lot of his movies, a lot of his books were getting adapted into these, you know, popular military techno thriller movie adaptations. And you could say the same thing for John Grisham, you know, the legal thriller was a big thing in the early nineties, the firm and, and Pelican brief and what have you. But think about the movies that came out right around this window that, you know, Harrison Ford was actually in, in three of these four, but you have the hunt for red October in 1990 Patriot games in 92 
93 is The Fugitive, and Clear and Present Danger. Don't you feel like those four movies all sort of belong in this, like, there's great action, but also there's something that's a little bit more highbrow and cerebral with the storyline? Absolutely. They're definitely cut from the, the, the same old. And again, but I look at it, we keep talking about Roger, but these are like, this is Roger's wheelhouse, right? So I don't know how old Dad would have been when these movies came out, but I mean, you know, reading Tom Clancy books and all that stuff, and I remember being on the Metro in D.C. when I came down here in 89, Every other person's reading, you know, The Hunt for October. They're reading all about that stuff. I mean, the Metro, you know, when they weren't re- reading Bridges in Madison County, this is the kind of stuff that they were reading, getting ready for the movies to come out. They were just gold. Yep. I mean, if, I was thinking about Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger, and I would say Clear and Present Danger was probably the last, like, again, the last great action film that had a little bit more of substance to it from a storyline perspective, from a script perspective. And again, it's interesting to me that Harrison Ford is in three of these four movies that we just referenced. And, you know, Alec Baldwin plays the same character in Red October that he didn't play in the others. But there's just something something there for those four years that and those movies were all really good. They stopped making these movies after this. It's so interesting. We should have had the, uh, the script for Clear and Present ready, and we could have done the president... And Jack Ryan, and you know what scene I'm talking about. How dare, <laughs> how dare you, sir, come in here and bark at me like some rabid dog? And he's like, how dare you, sir? We've seen other successful, you know, intelligent action movies, and I would list The Matrix, which came along in '99, um, and again, a very different movie than the ones we just referenced. But again, great action, but also really cerebral in terms of the, of the storyline of that movie. And then John Wick comes to mind. And I would normally not put John Wick in the same category as of these movies that I just referenced, but because um, that, that, those movies are, you know, the Wick films are high, high action. Uh, but I do think that there is a, a very clever storyline that was developed in the Wick movies with the universe that they establish and the whole gold coins and that whole like the Baba Yaga, all that stuff is, is really rich and really sophisticated for a movie like that. And I think that's the reason why those movies are so successful. But um, beyond that, I mean, r- shortly after these movies, man, that's when it all changed. And and all of a sudden, you know, I, I would say maybe was it fair to say that Iron Man was sort of the the first movie that kind of came along that sort of changed the paradigm. And it, it went from movies that were made with, you know, practical sets and not a lot of, reliance on on cgi and and special effects and what have you and and then all of a sudden iron man comes along and it's marvel and it's the ip and i don't want to give you shit about your marvels i know you're a big marvel guy but like don't you feel like it all sort of changed after iron man i think movies found a different gear from the success of iron man but i think if you had john favreau on this call right now i think he would tell you how much of iron man was not cgi and all that stuff i think that came quickly after but i think they were working on stuff like that but i think there are there are a lot of physical shots in iron man that that didn't convey later on in the marvel thing but let's not even let's not even go there what is it about those movies that were so um so satisfying for people like you and me because again like you know i wish you just said it a few minutes ago you wish they made movies like that still why is that like what do you miss about it I think that it had um, a clearer perspective. I think it was, you know, the good guy and the bad guy. And I think you were able to follow the story and it wasn't a whodunit, but it was still like, here's a hero. Maybe dare I call it an everyman. I mean, Jack Ryan wasn't a, he wasn't James Bond. He wasn't Indiana Jones. He was just an analyst. So, but, but to be able to follow him along through his life and even even Richard Kimball, right? Richard Kimball wasn't an action star. He was a he was a, a surgeon in Chicago 
And it's like bad things went down for him. And then all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I want to get on board with this guy. I want to figure out where the story goes and I want to cheer for him or whatever, because he's just every man. Now people said that about, you know, about John McClane and Die Hard. You know, he's a cop, he's all this stuff, but he was still every man. He didn't show up for the adventure, but you know, you kind of follow him along the movie. And I think that's where that kind of stuff goes. Hunt for October is the same way. I mean, Jack Ryan, you know, he gets thrown into this mix and he's like, I didn't ask for this. I didn't even want to be in this movie. And next thing you know, they put him in the movie and you're like, you know, get out of town. This guy has now got to get flown out on a helicopter out into the middle of the Indian Ocean. It's just great stuff. And you just kind of roll with each new conflict in the movie. And that was what made it special. Same thing with Richard Kimball. How much of that you think was, for, I guess, going back to The Fugitive, how much of that is based on Harrison Ford versus the everyman, right? Because like, you know, Harrison Ford, prior to a movie like this, he was these larger than life characters, right? He's Han Solo. He's Indiana Jones. I mean, you can't get any larger than life than Indiana Jones. I mean, the summer of 84, I mean, I had that guy's poster all over my room. Like Indiana Jones was my hero. I used to get made fun of in school because I loved Indiana Jones as much as I did. This was a little bit of a departure for him because it's, he, to your point, he's playing the surgeon, which isn't, you know, on paper or something that's very exciting. It's a guy that's, you know, he's a doctor, right? But so like, do you think that The Fugitive works because it's Ford? Or do you think it works because it's it's Richard Kimball, the surgeon, and he's a regular person, or is it a little bit of both? I think it's definitely a little bit of both. And I like when you were going through the list of, of Ford's, you know, 12 movie run there. It's interesting how he's like, I want to play different people. I want to play a guy that goes and lives with Amish. I want to go play the guy Mosquito Coast. I want to play a guy that's a surgeon whose wife gets brutally killed just to, just so I can try on different faces. I mean, he had the keys to the movie kingdom. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. And it was interesting to see him playing all of these different parts, not just Indiana Jones over and over again. I never really thought about it that way, that this was probably one of the more, I guess like atypical Ford characters that he's ever played. Cause this guy is not larger than life. He's just a, he's right. a surgeon. And, and obviously, um, and you feel for the guy so quickly. Now we're going to get into this in a few minutes, but I think the other thing about this role for him that is really unique is that it's not the only protagonist in this movie. I think I, you know, you can make the argument that Tommy Lee Jones as, as Samuel Gerard is, is as much a protagonist in this film. This is a very character driven Hollywood action movie that was made for an older audience. It's very clear as you watch it, even today, it's, it's not made for kids. I mean, I find that's why I asked you if Oliver liked it. Well, it's weird because I think about Oliver as a 13 and I think about what movies I was seeing as, as a 13 year old, like Oliver hasn't seen Rocky yet. And I'm afraid that letting him see Rocky, not that he couldn't handle the subject matter, but I'm afraid at the end of Rocky, he's going to shrug his shoulders and be like, man, how many movies of this did they make? And I'm like, this is, this is Rocky. You didn't, you didn't get excited. I don't know. Did he win? The end was confusing. All right. The end was confusing. I didn't know he won, but it's like, you didn't like it. So I'm afraid that as soon as I unleash the hounds, that's, that's going to be it. When you want to have that shared experience with your, with your son or your daughter, like do you get disappointed when they don't like it when you do like when they don't have the reaction that you're hoping that they have, is that kind of like a bummer for you? It doesn't, it doesn't happen very often, but I try to steer the ship. Like I, when Oliver and I did our, our um, John Wick binge, like I know what Oliver likes and, you know, I let him watch it. And if the parents are out there, like, I can't believe you let your 13 year old John Wick. <laughs> I mean, it's violent. There's language, but there's no sex. There's no nudity. You know, I see the video games he plays downstairs. So if you want to judge me, judge me completely. But um, but I, I know what his sweet spot is. You know, Alice wants to watch Mamma Mia. She wants to watch Mamma Mia, too. So everybody's 
everybody's got their strengths, but it is, it's fun taking them on a journey. I'm sure. Yeah. That must be sort of surreal for you to go back and, and revisit these movies that were really important to you when you were a younger adult. The film critic Kenneth Turin from the LA Times, he actually said this about Harrison Ford in 1983 is that it's rare among action heroes, but Ford is believable both in control and in trouble someone audiences could look up to and worry about. And I, and I do think that's the, the dynamic that's really interesting about a movie like this, where he's this character that you buy him as this doctor. He comes across very sophisticated, but at the same time, he's a, an everyman that's in trouble. And, and the entertainment reporter, Ty Burr, he writes in this 2013 book, Gods Like Us. I thought this was really interesting, uh, how um, studios started changing um, the kinds of movies that they were making and coming into the early 90s. To protect the opening weekend and the larger investment, the movie business needed stars to be inclusive rather than divisive. And one reason why there was a gradual move away from the bulging 80s cartoons like Stallone and Schwarzenegger towards more believable everyman action heroes, like you mentioned, Bruce Willis and Die Hard or Harrison Ford in The Fugitive. I, I never realized that, that was sort of happening at that moment where these big gonzo 80s action movies, which we talked a little bit about a few months ago when we did Good Bad Movies, Right. Um, those movies sort of went away. I mean, they, they still made them here and there, but I would say come the 90s, there was definitely a change. The change was very, very welcome. Who else could have played Richard Kimball? I, I came up with one other actor that they could have pulled this off. You know who it is? Tell me. Kevin Costner. What do you think? Uh, I love Costner. <laughs> I love Costner. He wouldn't have had to do an accent, so that would have taken those people out of the equation. It would have been, I think, uh, yeah, Costner's. He that's this was in his wheelhouse, right? I mean, I was thinking about like yeah. who else could play him. I mean, he's not. I'm not saying he's Harrison Ford, but I think he was one of those actors back in the late '80s, early '90s that were that was kind of making that change from like character driven stuff, which is what he did with No Way Out, and and then he obviously did The Untouchables, which was a big spectacle studio film that he played Elliot Ness. People looked up to him, but he was also still sort of an everyman, you know, and then what was he doing in 92, 93, 92, 93. Um, he did, well, he did the bodyguard, right. But I think like shortly after that window, when he did, um, what was that fugitive movie that he did? He played, um, um, a perfect world that the movie that Clint Eastwood directed after that, I sort of feel yeah, like was when Costner really started to change. He did the postman and, and he did all this other stuff. And I feel like by mid nineties, Costner became like, the big, you know, action star, Waterworld. Sure. And he, yeah. he kind of moved away from playing those everyman parts, right? I mean, I guess, like, you can't blame an actor for doing that. This movie was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Did you remember that? It was up for Best Picture? I don't remember that at all. I mean, obviously, I remember Tommy Lee Jones and him winning and his acceptance speech and stuff, but I did not know. That must have been something for guys like us back in the 90s to have a movie like this that we loved, to be up for best picture. That's actually pretty incredible. Yeah. I, I knew that it was up for obviously the, the supporting actor Oscar, which Tommy Lee Jones absolutely deserved. But I, I, I want to say that I remembered it at the time that, that it was up for best picture. But when I did this, you know, the research for this particular episode, I, I, that stood out to me. And how do you feel about that? I mean, like if you watch the fugitive today, do you feel like it, it checks the best picture boxes for you? Uh, um, I know you want me to say yes. But I, I think I want you to say what you feel. Well, but it's hard for me to, to look at that movie in my in, with 1993 goggles now, you know, being who I am now and what I've seen and what movies have, will evolve to. I think if you asked me at the time, I would have been absolutely right that it's up for best picture. If I looked at it now, I think they got it right. I think there were some, a couple good acting standout performances, but the movie as a whole, because of like there are some slow parts, there are some disjointed plot things. I've, I've got a, um, if you'll allow me, 
later. I've got uh, some some unanswerable questions. We're going to steal that from another podcast that I would like your answers for. Maybe you can help me through, and maybe my answer will change. But there's there's a couple things that I struggle with. But the movie as, as a whole is phenomenal, but I don't see it as best picture. It lost to um, Schindler's List, which obviously was a, a, a masterwork from Steven Spielberg. And Spielberg even had two movies that year. He had Jurassic earlier that year. So it was it's no Schindler's List. But the fact that it was recognized as a top five great film of the year. I'm thrilled that a movie like that got recognized because you know that doesn't always happen or a, a big studio action movie. But again, I think it gets back to that this movie just had something else an, an additional layer to it that I think you and I are going to talk about in a second about why this movie is as good as it is. But when I went back and rewatched it recently, Tommy Lee Jones, he's tremendous in this film. And I think as, as good as Ford is, Ford's role is very understated. It's actually a very, um, what I would say, a very physical performance. He doesn't talk a lot. There are stretches in this movie where Ford really has to act with expression and, and he has to capture a lot through his actions. But Tommy Lee Jones, I mean, the moment he walks into the film, Jim, at the train crash site, I mean, he just he just takes this movie to a whole other level and he never really relinquishes his control of it throughout the rest of it. I wrote in my notes almost exactly verbatim what you just said. I wrote Tommy Lee Jones owns this film from the second he steps out of the car. The car pulls up and there's five people in the car like it's an oversized car. Yep. Big sedan. And he gets out. And like right away, you're just like, what what's about to happen? Because, you you know, there's been a lot of movie now that's happened without him in it. Yep. And he he shows up and he like grabs the reins for this movie and he's like, let's go. And there's a like that sheriff guy that's like doing like a little like impromptu like press conference. Right. And he's, oh, talking. Yeah, he's doing a little show. And, and Tommy Lee Jones comes up and he's like he's like he tries to introduce himself and interrupt. And the guy's like, I'll be with you in just a minute. And then like Tommy Lee Jones has this great response. He's just like, OK. Like he was just like, I'm going to give you another six seconds before I'm going to start being an asshole. Fantastic. There's like these little subtleties in his performance all throughout the movie that he, I think that movie just gets to a whole other level with Tommy Lee Jones. I mean, the, the reaction he makes when Kimball jumps into the water, when he jumps off the on, on, on the aqueduct and he does the big jump, like he does like this, like half-assed, like yeah. chuckle almost. And like he, he couldn't yeah. believe that he just did it. it. I mean, that's what a what a reaction. And then the other one, like little things, like even at the end when – um, the way he tells Richard that he knows he's innocent and it's, it's in the big action set piece at the end in the hotel or right. in the cop car at the end when he gets that little ice pack and he squishes it in his hand <laughs> and he puts it on Richard's neck or whatever it is, like the expression he has that he knows that like he was wrong, you know, and, yeah. that, you know, and Richard Kimball was right all this time. That's great stuff. That's that's why he won. Yeah. Do you want to do the speech? Are you ready? Yeah, I was born ready to do the speech. Let me let me get into character. How long have you been working on this? Um, what's today? <laughs> Like today's Monday. I learned it on uh, Saturday morning. You learned this two days ago. But they, um, they, my family comes downstairs and like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm getting off book for this speech. It's gonna. They're like, how long is it gonna take? I said, it's gonna take me like ten minutes. Now I say that, that means I'm gonna mess this thing up. But let's see, let me let me get into character. Hold on a minute. All right, listen up, Uncle Dennis. Our fugitive has been on the run for ninety minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injury, is four miles per hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. Slap, what I want from you is a hard target search of every residence, warehouse, farmhouse, henhouse, outhouse, and doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. Fantastic. Well done, my friend. Everybody, just for the record, Jim Camlin did not read that off of any document, no page. I love it. And that's my best Tommy Lee Jones you're going to get tonight. I mean, what an amazing sequence that happens so early in this movie. Like, wow. Oh, wow. Gee whiz. Look here. 
You know, we're always fascinated when we find leg irons with no legs in them. Who the hell the keys, sir? Me. Where are those keys at? I don't know. Care to revise your statement, sir? What? Do you want to change your bullshit story, sir? He might have got out. He might have got out. What the hell is this? A minute ago, you're telling me he's part of the wreckage, and now he might have got out? Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injuries, four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. You probably came across the same Rolling Stone article about the fugitive. Did you read that? Oh, I sure did. All? I absolutely did. <laughs> so like, and, and I'm not going to read all of these things, but um, I was, and I like this one from Tommy Lee Jones. He was saying that the company had an advisor who was a young, very enthusiastic deputy marshal. And I spent a good deal of time with him talking about his work, how he felt about it from day to day. And my rather marvelous discovery was how much fun this guy had doing his work, how much he loved it. And I thought that was important. I thought that 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 would be important for Gerard and his crew to be understood as really enjoying their work and being good at it. And I feel like that just resonates on the film, right? These guys are well-oiled. He is a dick to them when, when, you know, he loves them. And I can give you the examples of the love and I can give you the examples of him him being a dick, but they actually have a really good camaraderie. Like I wouldn't be surprised if they were one of those group of actors that they sent away for some kind of a bonding thing. Oh, we sent them off to Canada for a weekend so they could get to know each other because that's the way it comes across in the film. And I think that's what makes the, the Fugitive resonate for me. I did read this, that they did a lot of improv there, that a lot of the lines that those guys, you're talking about Joey Pants and, and some of the other actors, um, they all, the guy that played Cosmo and, and some everybody else, like they were, they were riffing. Like I think Andrew Davis yeah. let them come up with a lot of their own ad lib material. And I think it shows like you believe that those guys all work together and they have been working together for years. Like the shorthand that they, and I want to reference some of those lines in a little bit. We're going to get into some of that stuff. Cause there's some great, yeah. great stuff there that again, that that's like the juicy material in the screenplay that whether it be if it's, if it's just great writing or if it's the actors that are ad living and making the characters their own, but that decision they made to give um, Tommy Lee Jones an entourage, because I don't believe that was in the script. I think Andrew Davis, you know, actually added sure. that and said, hey, let's give this guy an entourage because I think this is going to just make him more of a badass and show that uh, like the the paternal nature that he has as, as, a, as a character. Right. I feel like there's two main paths about why this movie works. I think one is the theme of law versus justice doing what you think is right versus what is legal. And then the, the pace of the movie that really just is nonstop, but it's also this theme. And again, I referenced it a few minutes ago about these almost two protagonists. You know, one is trying to protect the law and the other one is trying to clear his name. Now, I think it's, it's, it's spot on. And I think about it, let's just say, and again, we can talk about us marshals later, but like, if you think about it, if they didn't make Ford, the good guy, if they didn't make him the protagonist and they just said, okay, somebody is an escaped whatever. And this movie is literally about Gerard and his merry men figuring out and like solving it and trying to, you know, be on him. 
that's a movie. Yep. And I and I don't think it I don't think it works so well in US Marshals, but if they would have gotten rid of Harrison Ford and kept these guys and they're a couple steps behind this fugitive and they're chasing him, they're putting the clues together and there there's an L, Chicago has an L, all that stuff. I think it would have been I think it would have still been a fabulous movie. It would have been a different movie, but it would have been a fabulous movie because I think these guys and one woman could have definitely carried this movie. I want to hear the sound of an elevated train. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that part of the reason why this movie works as well as it does is because they establish immediately? I mean, I'm talking about a, a very economical opening to this film where you know already that he's 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 innocent, right? As opposed to like if you not as a viewer, you're not quite sure if Kimball did it or not did it. And if the movie played out that way, where it's more of a puzzle and you need to sort of figure out whether or not this guy actually did it. But I love the fact that they established it right out of the gate that Kimball's innocent and he's clearing his name. My first unanswerable question. Ooh, let's have it. And I'm not saying we disagree on this. Okay. But I just watched this movie last night and I was like, it's hard for me to watch it and say I'm watching it for the first time. But as a first time viewer, are you not supposed to know he's guilty or innocent when the movie starts? And like in 92, the TV show was probably very close in the rearview mirror. So everybody's like, oh yeah, this is based on the TV show. And this man goes to jail for killing his wife, the one-armed man. But like in this movie, how far into the movie are we seeing it before we know or they show us something that he's not the killer? They show some really quick flashbacks of the actual murder incident, right? At his, at his, of, the, of the one-armed guy yeah, giving him a beating? At the top of the stairway with the one-armed man. You see him pull the arm out of its thing. So you, you do see Frederick Sykes very early on. Like during the opening credits? Because I know you have a very long opening credits. It's all well, the, the opening credits were really long in this movie, which is one of the things I love about it. But I but I do feel like not a lot happens in this film before you realize that Kimball's innocent. Okay. So, um, but I think that's a really great point. I mean, again, part of me wonders, like in the hands of another screenwriter or director, they could have approached the fugitive in a much different way where you don't know for a really long time in this movie of whether or not yeah. he did it. And I don't, I don't think that necessarily is a bad way to do it, but I, I guess because it's Harrison Ford and you, you need to establish this guy right away and you need to root for him as an audience that they needed you to buy into it pretty quickly that this guy was wronged. You know, I mean, let me go off on a, on a slight tangent. You can wheel me back in the first time you saw Shawshank Redemption. Did you think Andy was guilty? <sighs> When I first read that script and I saw that movie in 94, there was a minute there where I kind of felt like he did, like that he did do it. Yeah. I mean, how could you not? Because it all sort of pointed towards not? It, right? He's dropping the bottle, the bullets, and he's out in front of the house. You're like, and then the testimony, the whole courtroom scene, you're like, wow. And like, and you know, one of the things I like about this movie is I like the courtroom scene. Again, the credits are still going and the courtroom scene in Ford. I mean, that's some of Ford's best acting. He doesn't mutter a sound. But he's sitting there as his life is being is being you know decided for him. He's got this like lone tear yep. going down his face. It's a really powerful scene, and like I was just watching it, and I was like, I just didn't know if they really gave it that away that like this guy is 100 percent innocent or 100 percent guilty, or are they starting to make you want to think about it? Anyway, it was just no, was you fun. know, Jim. It's really interesting. Um, the Shawshank reference is really cool because I now that you say that. Both movies do an amazing job very quickly of establishing, you know, storyline and, and context for these two characters. They accomplish a lot in, in a short amount of time. Um, and what I love, and you know me, I love this about The Fugitive, is that after the whole, like, and he's in court and, and he gets the sentencing and then, you know, then he's in the he's in his fatigues and he's got the chains and, and he's being walked out to the bus. And that's when the credits start again. Like the movie, it's interesting, like the movie shows credits for a little bit for, for a bit early. Then they have all this, this, you know, exposition 
and they stop with the credits. He gets sentenced and then they start the credits again. And I do yeah. think it's almost like 15 minutes of screen time and they're still showing credits. I love that. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> Just take your time. Do whatever you want to do. We're all in. Take your time. We're good. There was a couple of interesting takes from some of the critics in the, in the market at the time. But Owen Gleiberman, who was the um, Entertainment Weekly critic at the time, this is what he said about The Fugitive. Kimball and Gerard spend the entire film on opposite sides of the law. Before long, though, we realize we're rooting for both of them. They are both protagonists, united in brains, dedication, superior gamesmanship. The film's breathless momentum springs from their jaunty competitive urgency. That is something that you just don't see in movies today where you have Ford actually having a, you know, basically sharing his protagonist title with somebody else that's technically supposed to be chasing him. But um, both are really good at what they do. They're just going about it differently. It was uh, very generous of Harrison Ford, the movie star, to, and I don't know him, but I know of him. And he doesn't sound like the most laid back of men at times. He sounds difficult at other times. But for him to be like, I want to share the spotlight. And I, and again, if you ran, if you ran timers for screen time, I mean, Tommy Lee Jones is in this movie a lot, right? Wouldn't you agree? A lot. I mean, I'm sure, I, I'm sure that they've run that clock, and I guarantee Harrison Ford's got a lot more time, but it doesn't feel like it. No. When you watch this movie. I see why they gave him the supporting, and I'm sure that was probably yep. how Warner Brothers, you know, campaigned it. But you could yep. certainly make the argument if if they in another another world gave Tommy Lee Jones the Oscar for Best Actor for this movie, I, I wouldn't have an issue with it. <laughs> Completely agree. Chicago Sun Times film critic Roger Ebert named uh, The Fugitive the fourth best movie of 1993, and this is what he had to say about it: the the, the device of the film is to keep Kimball only a few steps ahead of his pursuers. It's a dangerous strategy and could lead to laughable close calls and near misses. But Andrew Davis tells the story of the pursuit so clearly on a tactical level that we can always understand why Kimball is only so far ahead and no further. I can't hear anything. My, my ear is... Uh... I can't believe you did that. You think I should have bargained with that guy? Yeah, I do. You could have missed. You could have killed me. Yeah. How bad's that ear? It's terrible. I'm going to have permanent hearing damage. Let me see it. Come here. Can you hear what I'm saying now? Yeah. Talk about like a great sequence. It's cold. It's windy. The, the kid, the kids really shook up as he almost got killed. And, and again, they just in, in very little dialogue, he just establishes what a badass he is. Just, but it's the shot. So you're seeing the kid and I know that's not it's Newman. Is that Newman? It's Newman. Yep. So you see him in profile, the cameras on him and the shot is in the, and the house is in the background. Yep. And Tommy Lee Jones comes out. He's got that hat that looks like it belongs in Nepal yep. in Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? <laughs> and he's got the hat on and you see him, he's got a blanket or he's got a jacket and he comes out and he's like, and Newman's just like, man, I, I can't believe you, I can't believe you did that, right? 
And like, and it's, that's, it's such a sweet scene. Those are just like little moments, little choices that the director makes in this movie that I, I think in the hands of other filmmakers, um, you don't see a scene like that in a movie like this. And, and that's the stuff that works. That's the stuff that makes this movie. Do you remember what the Oscar clip was for Tommy Lee Jones? Oh, gee. I mean, I guess we can look it up. Yeah. But do you think it's the speech or do you think it's something like that? Because that's the scene that I would show when he comes out there and he's like, he's like, can you hear me? He's like, I don't bargain. Like, that's a great Oscar scene. And I actually think that scene is one of the best scenes in the movie. Um, it's, yeah. it's, it's so good. I think, I think uh, Gerard actually has most of the great scenes in this movie, in my opinion. The relentless pace is the other big thing in this movie that I just love, you know, and we talked a little bit already about how economical this movie is and how quickly it starts. And, you know, 15 minutes in, there's this, this giant train and bus sequence and people are clapping in the theater. And, and all of a sudden this guy's in a, and he's in an ambulance and he's being chased and like the aqueduct scene. I mean, all that is probably the first 25 minutes of, of this two hour, 10 minute movie. It's, it's, it's insane how fast this movie gets you going. And, and obviously it slows down a little bit to establish the storyline once he gets to Chicago and so much happens so quickly. One of the things I found really interesting when I rewatched this movie is how Kimball, he goes from being the hunted to the hunter. And it, it sort of happens again, like maybe like an hour into this movie where he's being chased. Right. And he's, he's, he's right. on the run. He's, he's running for his life. But then as he gets to Chicago and he, and he starts to kind of take some chances and he gets to the apartment and, and then all of a sudden he's trying to establish, you know, what happened to himself. He's trying to get the facts and trying to figure out how he was framed. And, it, and at that point is when he's now, when he puts it all together, that it's Devlin McGregor and it's Charles Nichols and, and the other doctors that were involved. Like he, again, he goes from being hunted to, He's using his wit and his intelligence and his smarts. Yeah. And now he's got, he's not going to stop. And he's now, you know, relentless like Tommy Lee Jones is relentless. It is interesting. And, and, and I just watched it. And I would love to know the moment in the script where they decide that he, he's got to, if, if he wants to control his own fate, he's got to figure this out. Right. Because if, if he gets caught, he's going back to jail. He already had a trial. You know, he's already, he's already been found guilty by a jury of his peers. He's going back in. So him taking, um, possession of his own fate. And again, I go back to Shawshank, you know, completely different circumstances. But at some point in time in that movie, Andy Dufresne is like, I like, I need to figure this out. Like I can sit here and become an old guy, like what's his face, or I can take control of my destiny and, and get going. Right. I mean, there's, there's a lot of similarities between that. Now that I'm thinking about it. Are we saying that the fugitive and Shawshank redemption are basically the same movie? I think it's the exact same movie. <laughs> We're sort of joking, but I think that's really a really fascinating parallel that Andy's trying to defend his name and he's trying to find out what happened. And, and Richard Kimball did the same thing. I never thought about that until you just said that. When they put Kimball in the leg irons and the cuffs and the whole thing, you're just like, man, dude, you're fucked. Like we're 10 minutes into this movie. And like, I don't know. I don't literally know how you're going to get out of this. Like you, they've got you dead to rights. And he's like, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to get out of it either. Bus crash that I didn't cause. I got to figure this thing out. When I do research on movies like this, I don't usually go back and look at too many um, critical assessments, but I, I, on this right. one, I actually read up on a lot of them. And you and I were big Washington Post guys because we lived in DC for many years, but Destin Howe, you remember the name. Oh yeah. This is what he said about The Fugitive in 93. And I love this because this really captures, again, what I was getting at about the pace of this movie. A juggernaut of exaggeration, momentum, and thrills without a single lapse of subtlety the Fugitive is pure energy, a perfect orchestration of heroism, villainy, suspense, and comic relief. Ford makes the perfect rider for a project like this with his hand dog, handsome, everyman presence. 
He's one of us, but one of us at his personal best. I mean, and I love the fact that he referenced the comic relief because that's that's another piece I was going to ask you about in this movie. Because a movie like this, you don't need the comedy necessarily. This movie's pretty damn funny. I mean, like there's pretty some there's some sequences that you actually are not even like chuckling, but kind of laughing a little bit, particularly with Gerard and his deputies. Absolutely. I mean, like the little stuff like Hinky, like the one guy that talks about like, oh, it's Hinky. And like they're, they're walking. Dude, that the- was the first thing on my list was the Hinky. The first thing. Who comes up with that? Oh. You think that's the actor? You think that's writing? What is that? I would love to know that was improv, but who knows? But one of the things I found interesting about this movie is that I'm not sure if you noticed this, but like Julianne Moore plays the one doctor that's in the hospital in Chicago. Right. And she only has a couple of scenes and she's the one that calls security. Apparently, the original script of this movie is that Kimball and that female character, that doctor character, they were supposed to have a love interest. And they eliminated it. So that's why she shows up in this movie, Julianne Moore, who was already a name at this point. She shows up and she actually gets a really high billing in the credits. And the reason why she got high billing is because she was supposed to be in the movie a lot longer than she than she ended up making in, in the final cut. They cut all that out. Thank God. They filmed the love interest scene and then they... Yes, apparently. So how was that going to fit? So they're showing flashbacks of Helen crawling to the phone, bloodied, and then after that flashback's over, they're going to show Kimball hooking up? <laughs> no. How do you feel about the ending of that movie with the whole, like, you know, finale in the hotel and, you know, there's the the, the medical conference going on downstairs? I always felt like the, the finale of this movie was a little, just a little bit anticlimactic. When you've got, I guess, bad guys being the pharmaceutical company and Dr. Nichols and all that stuff, it's hard to, like... You know, you want to have an action thing. All the right people need to be punched in the face or shot or whatever. And I think they probably got to the movie's ending and they said, well, how do we wrap this up? Like, how does, how does, how does Kimball get to punch people in the face? How can, how can Gerard be there? And they're like, why don't we have it in the hotel's laundry? What was it in the laundry room? Yeah, right? in the laundry. I mean, it's sure. just, it's just kind of like, yeah, they, yeah, I, I think it was not their strongest part of the film. Let's talk about the little things about this movie that we both love. I have a feeling that you have a, a list of things and, and I certainly do. Well, my first one was going to be, um, why do you say hinky? So you stole that one. <laughs> but I, 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 appreciate, I appreciate it. It's like taking cocktail from me when we did the, the good, bad movies. The first thing I want to say, so you got to give me another one. I like that. And this is so like weird, but, but this is not a little thing. I like the interrogation scene when, when Kimball's pounding his fist on the interrogation t- table and he's doing this thing with his hand, he's like, this man with the yep. with this one arm, like he's doing this really weird hand thing. But when they hand him the, the coffee mug, like it says the big one on it. Like I'm like, the big one what? Is it like, was like Sally's 50th birthday mug that was just in the, the pantry at the police station? <laughs> like it's such a random, non-random thing, right? The big one. I love that sequence in the beginning of the movie when he's when he's sitting there. I mean, I, you just feel for the guy, and and even in that sequence, I think they. What a, one of the things I was going to reference is they they do these flashbacks when he's in the car with his wife um, as they're driving back from that that benefit right, but right before he has to get called into surgery, and he's like he's 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 driving and she's in the passenger seat and he's like rubbing her cheeks and he's got his his hand is like his hand is like on her face. And, um, and again, like just, just in that one shot, you just get a sense on how in love these two are, right. And how close they are. And then when he comes back from having surgery and when he gets called to the hospital and he comes back and she has since been killed when he walks into his, in his house 
the first thing he says when he walks in is, Hey honey, who won the game? Like something really, yeah. something very basic and standard that a husband would say right. to his wife when he had to go to a, go to work unexpectedly. And that's the very first thing. It's like those little things or when, um, when he hangs up in the car, when he gets the call that he has to go into emergency surgery and he hangs up the phone, the first thing she says is I'll wait up for you. You know, he doesn't even say like, I'm sorry, honey. She just says, I'll wait up for you. Like she's seen this right. before. And these little, these little interactions between a man and a wife, I thought they captured brilliantly in this film. Did you see um, Doctor Strange? No, I did not. There's a scene. So Doctor Strange, Stephen Strange, before he becomes the Grand Wizard, whatever, he's a surgeon. He is like Richard Kimball's surgeon. And there's a scene in the very beginning of the movie where he is driving his, his sports car. He's driving it way too fast. But the call comes in from the hospital that says they have a surgery that he has to get to. And I, I swear to God, I, now that I just watched The Fugitive, I'm like, you just took that whole scene from the fugitive. Now, granted, you're going to become Doctor Strange. He's going to become fugitive. Yeah. But the whole thing with like a really successful guy getting a call. You know, one is on his car phone. The other one is on. You know, the car actually calls. I thought it was. I thought it was pretty cool. I just love how they made Chicago um, a character in this movie. And, and again, I've never lived there, but I've I've spent some time there. But apparently, that was Harrison Ford's recommendation to Andrew Davis that they needed to sh- um, set the, sh- the fugitive in Chicago. And I think that was a great call. Just all the overhead shots just adds yeah. a, an element of, of suspense. And, you know, you know that they're closing in on him because you know that he's there. So I thought, I thought Chicago, the parade, all that was really beautifully done. Um, and again, it, we referenced it earlier, but the scene when those guys are at the, uh, the office and they're, they're isolating the, the phone call that Richard makes to the other doctor. And they're trying to like, look, listen to the subway, the elevated train, that whole sequence. Hilarious. Play that again. I want to hear the sound of an elevated train. You must have ears like a hound or something, something like that. Again, like the, the camaraderie of, of Gerard and his guys. And even like when he, when he goes to Newman and he's like, Newman, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm thinking, he's like, think me up a donut with those colored sprinkles. As long as you're thinking what a great line that has to be ad lib. has to be, had to be ad lib. Right. All right. So this one where I'm about to give you one of mine, this is all Jim Kamlik. I swear that I did not research this. And if, and if I'm stealing some thunder, I apologize. Sorry, not sorry. What was the number on the prison bus? Oh, I have no idea. You ready to have your mind blown? Yes. What is it? 42. You have a tattoo on you. I do. Uh, what number? 42. It's right there. Okay, 42. <laughs> Here's where you're going to get your mind blown. Okay. Harrison Ford played Dodgers owner Branch Rickey in the Jackie Robinson movie, 42. Some 20 plus years later after this movie comes out. That's fun, but that's not it. Are you, re- are you ready <laughs> goes, for this? It goes deeper. Okay. This, dude, we're going to go so deep right now that it's, it's deep. So Rose from Lost, well, you were a Lost fan. Yep. I don't know Rose's character name in, um, she's one of Sam Gerard's guys, gals yep. in the thing. So Rose is from Lost. You, you know that I'm a huge Lost fan. Of course you are. The lost numbers, 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42, 42. is one of the lost numbers. They've got her in this movie in the early 90s before Lost even comes out. And they're already using the number 42, one of Hurley's lucky numbers. That's 
killer. That's all me. I did the research on that. I believe it. That's nuts. Do you think that there's a connection there? You think that's like intentional? It has to be. You think? There has to be. And I liked Ford in that movie. He was good in that. Yeah, he was ordinary. He was crass. And again, he's putting on a different costume. He's putting on a different face. And it was like something I had never really seen him do before. It was really fun to watch him. I got to tell you, I'm a little bit disappointed in myself that I've never noticed 42 on the bus. While you're rolling from that, there's a lot of food references. You just made a food reference with the donut. That's probably the number one food reference. Sure. I got to tell you what, this is one of my favorite scenes. I know you're going to agree with me. When he goes into the hospital and he's hiding and he's, you know, he gets the mirror and he's going to shave, he comes out and he makes that sandwich. Yep. Slap. That sandwich never looks so good. Tell me how he makes the sandwich. He grabs the, the two pieces of bread. It's like scrambled eggs and he just like put it he on puts there. He, the he, scrambled eggs over it and right? he makes the sandwich and he walks out to go. And like he gets stopped in the hallway and, you know, the guy's like, hey, have you seen a guy and whatever? But he's got the remnants of that sandwich left. Yep. That's such good detail because I knew exactly what that sandwich tasted like. I think that's perfection. And, and the fact that like they took the time to even do that, which isn't really necessary in a movie like this. It doesn't serve the story, but it lets you realize this guy just spent the night outside sleeping in leaves, you know, and he's been on the run since this crash. He's 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 hurt and he's starving. And, and like the fact that he had to go in there and take the time to shave his beard and all that, but then to grab that food, so smart. And then the other food reference is, and I don't know the character's name. So when they raid that house where Ford's staying yep. and they bring the son of the woman in and they're like, they're talking to him and they hold up the mugshot of Kimball and they're like, are you saying this guy is staying in your mom's basement or something like that? And the guy's like, that's exactly what I'm saying. And he takes a bite of like this big burrito that they must have given him in the police station. Like it's so incredibly random. Like, why are they feeding him? Like, like, listen, there's burritos if you want one, but he's like, that's exactly what I'm saying. He's like, (sighs) it takes the bite. Like such hilarious detailing. When they were going through his garbage can in that apartment downstairs after Kimball had to leave and they find the orange slices uh, is like little, little details that Richard Kimball's eating oranges is just bizarre. I've got it on here. It's like, look at this. We're eating oranges and making IDs. It's perfect. How did Kimball have the money to afford to rent that basement apartment from that? Was that lady Polish, Albanian? What, what are we talking about there? Nichols gave him that wad of money. He gave him a couple of bucks, though. Like he said, I don't, was, I don't know. Maybe a couple bucks to you. Maybe there were hundreds. Like maybe that woman was like, yeah, I'll rent it to you for a hundred bucks a night. I don't know. I, I, it's, a, it's a good question. I love how they establish how nice a guy Kimball is. Like, you know, twice when they bring in the guard from the train wreck, like the next morning yep. and they pull him out of the ambulance and the guy recognizes Kimball, but like Kimball, like gives him like the, you know, the, the, the medics bringing him in. He's like, make sure you check for whatever. And then like later on, I think the kid's name is Joel or Joey. When he switches the stuff and you're just like, man, like your entire life is effed right now, but you're still like, you still can't stop being the doctor. Cause you're like a good guy. Like, right. Like you, you the, the beginning of the story, be all before the shit went down, like you were a nice guy and you're like, I can't lose my compassion of what made me become a doctor. Yep. And like, to me that it's such a well-rounded Kimball character. Like you feel for that guy and you know, Harrison Ford, he's an awesome actor and you, and he makes you feel for him, but he just, you, you feel such compassion for the guy. It gets back to what I was trying to say earlier about the hunter and the hunted, you know, where he became that, that hunter character halfway through this movie. And, and again, he's back in his element. He's doing the research about the limbs and he's, you know, he's the custodian, but he's going into that office and he's shutting the door and he's, pretending that he's cleaning the windows, but he's doing research on how to find the, you know, to narrow down the search to try to figure out who who would have had a limb like that, you know, just like 
it's great. Just great detail. You brought it up the scene where when they they stop on Gerard after he takes the jump off the dam and they, you know, he kind of has that recognition. They do another recognition later on when Gerard finds out that Kimball stole the ambulance. And there is like such a level of respect that I think that Gerard's got for this guy. He's like, this guy, he literally, he literally did that. And I, I think that Gerard is like, well, first off, I like doing my job. But if I'm after a guy that can jump off a goddamn aqueduct and can steal an ambulance, like game on, like get, get some more donuts because yeah. I'm into this. Like the last guy we brought in, it took me 24 hours and it was done. This guy seems like he's a worthy adversary. I'm, I'm enjoying this. Let's go. Totally agree with you. And even like when they show Gerard in his office in that high rise in Chicago and he's like standing by the window and he's just out looking out at the city of Chicago. And you know that that's exactly what he's thinking. Like he's he's out yeah. there thinking that guy's out there right now and this guy is an, a worthy adversary. And I am I am all in. I am not going to stop until I find this guy. But like also sort of respects him at the same time. The movie was filmed in North Carolina. Um, I had no idea, no idea of that. I just thought the film was probably filmed in and around Illinois. But um, obviously, as I said earlier, it was Harrison Ford's idea to film it in Chicago. He grew up in Chicago, went to college in Wisconsin. So that's the reason why um, he suggested that there was a grittiness. And he, he said that we could get the grittiness. We could get the flash of architecture the charm of the lake, Chicago has it all. And he really thought that added a whole other element. I'm going to give you choices for this answer. Yep. Best tunnel scene in a film. Here are your choices. Okay. Independence Day. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back to the Future 2. They got that big chase scene with Marty with the, with the hoverboard. Sneakers. Right? Sneakers. Oh, and he's in the um when they're in the uh, when they when they assassinate the guy, the Russian guy, they blow him it's a whole tunnel. I think we're in the, the tunnel not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Yep. Um Shawshank Redemption or the Fugitive. Oh those are your God. choices. And see, some of those are like real small, like personal tunnels, and others are like more like, you know. Personal tunnels. Oh my God, that's interesting. I, I gotta go with uh I mean, I got to go with, again, as we've already established in this podcast, that Shawshank and The Fugitive are essentially the same movie. Um, you've sort of blown my mind on this whole Shawshank thing. I got to go Shawshank. That tunnel is, is pretty memorable when Andy's crawling through that. I've got on here best Chicago parade scene in the film. I can, I can only come <laughs> I don't up with know what the choices are. I'm going to give you the choices. I can only come up with two. It's Ferris Bueller's Day Off and it's The Fugitive, right? You got to give the edge to Bueller, right? I would think. Yeah, he, he sings. <laughs> it's great. Harrison Ford was not originally cast for the role of Richard Kimball. Um, a number of other actors were auditioned for it, including Alec Baldwin, Nick Nolte, Kevin Costner, and Michael Douglas. I thought that was interesting. Any of those jump out to you that might be might have been a good Kimball? I like Michael Douglas. What's the Michael Douglas? The game? Is that with the game when he's running around? Yep, that's the game. David Fincher film. Like that, that version of Michael Douglas, I think he could have done um, Richard Kimball easily. I don't see Baldwin as Richard Kimball. I don't see Nick Nolte necessarily. No. Gene Hackman and John Voight were both considered for the role of Samuel Gerard. I think Hackman would have been really interested in that. Agreed. Right? I think it, he could have played Gerard lighter, but I don't think he would have played it as funny. Is, yeah. is, but they probably said the same thing about Tommy Lee Jones before he filmed. They're like, can he do funny? And they're like, yeah, I bet he could do funny. I've met him. I've drank with him. He's a funny guy. Let him do funny. The character of Cosmo Renfro, who's played by Joe Pantoliano, um, he was supposed to die in the finale of the movie. And, and I think that's interesting is that scene when they're in the laundry, when that big metal beam hits him yeah, in the yeah, head yeah. and he goes down. I mean, that might have been originally filmed for all we know that that was his death 
But um, he obviously, they show him being carted out at the end and he's alive. But, uh, and the reason why they decided to uh, keep the character is that Joey Pants lobbied for his character to be spared so he can come out in the sequel, which was the U.S. Marshals that came out in 1998. I'm not sure if he made the right decision there because that movie wasn't very good, but, um, but whatever. That's a whole other thing. How many times was Harrison Ford injured filming movies? I know he got hurt in this movie for sure. He actually he fucked himself up in this movie, man. That limp. I, mean, I watched it last night. He like tore a ligament early on in the production of this movie. And that's why he walks around in a limp. Ligament damage in his leg, running in the woods in the beginning. He hurt himself in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in that big scene at Pencott Palace when he's wrestling in the bedroom. I think he threw out his back in that, didn't he? Slap. That's exactly what I thought. When the guy comes up behind him, yeah. when they're having the sexual tension scene, but what they're saying, and I, and I found this on a lot of different websites today, he had a spinal injury. You're going to think I'm making this up. He had a spinal injury from riding elephants. What? Yeah. Well, dude, look it up. I'm telling you. It, I remember seeing like a news story once. On like the Today Show, where like that guy comes up behind him, and he, and they have the wrestling match, and he throws back out fighting that guy in his room. But apparently, it was spinal injury from riding elephants. I don't like the, that version of this at all. Raiders, he had an ACL in one of his knees and dysentery, which everybody knows about. Yep. Um, Force Awakens in 2014, that was a big one. Like the hydraulic door shut on his leg; it broke his leg. Really. Really? Like, and I remember him getting hurt, but I didn't know it broke his leg. Could you imagine a door like, hey, boss, I think we just broke Ford's leg. Like, could you imagine being like the set designer that was responsible for that? It was a little obvious, but also kind of funny and shrinking when he was eating the fun dip. That made me laugh because I love fun dip. And then um, when he was getting high at that party and like the second to last episode when they have that big um, wedding reception oh yeah and he's like he's like he eat the gummies and he's on the couch and he's eating the doritos and stuff just hilarious that was unbelievable he's sitting there high with the gummies that shit was funny i mean i was just thinking about that because like you don't see harrison ford ever play a character like that first of all so that that in and of itself was really interesting to me but then just how funny he could be i mean maybe he wished that harrison ford just played up for humor a little bit more in his career it's, it's not an avenue he ever really explored but quite good at it, like really good at it. So I'm adding the the train and bus location for a place that you and I need to go visit. Can we agree? It's still there. So we need to go there. But I'm also adding a couple other places. You know, I still want to go to Shawshank Prison. I know I keep going back to Shawshank, <laughs> but that is in Ohio. I will meet you there. We'll have a guy's weekend. I'll bring Oliver. That See, that would be good. Oliver hasn't seen it yet. So like the night before, we can watch it in the room because oh they God. have Shawshank themed hotels out there. You can stay in a motel that's like a theme. We go, we watch the movie. The next day, we go tour the prison. That would be that would be a weekend. Don't say no to that. They really have Shawshank themed hotels out there. That's fantastic. Well, I think by theme, it's like oh, there's photos from the movie in the hotel room, so you can feel like you're part of something. We got to stay at the Shining Hotel, right? Like that. That's a real place. That's in Mount Hood, Oregon. Like that is, let's just go there for no reason. We need to go to the Canyon of the Crescent Moon in, in Petra, Jordan. And listen, like, I, listen to me. I ordered, I've just ordered a rooftop unit for one of my construction projects, and it is being manufactured in Petra, Jordan. One of the guys I work with, he said they flew him out there 
to, for a fabrication site visit. And he's like, they took me to where they filmed Indiana Jones. I said, they took you to the Crescent Moon. He's like, yeah, whatever the fuck they called it. But that whole big structure with the carved out of the mountain, he's like, I stood right in front of it. I'm like, you had no right going to that. You don't even know what it's called. I'll bring the goblet. I have it right here. That's awesome. Yeah, we need to bring the goblet. These are some really good choices. Um, yeah, we're going to have to prioritize. I'm not sure if Jordan's the first one we should do. I think some of these others might be a little easier. <laughs> do you remember the, the, the Do you remember the set that I called you from? What Harrison Ford set did I call you from? Oh, my God. Way back in the day. Way back in the day, you called me from a Harrison Ford set. Well, it was it was once a set. It wasn't a set when I was there. But I called you and I said, guess where I'm calling you from right now? A very famous payphone. And you're like, shut the fuck up. Witness. The Amish store. That's right. And how I knew that because it was a sign that said Witness was filmed on this street. And it was the payphone out in front of the Amish store. And I was like, oh, I got to call. I had to, It was a change thing. I had to put the change in to call you. So worth Well, it. you gave me that, that like a little wooden cow or <laughs> goat. I bought it. I bought it from that store. The thing that Hawk Leitner gave to the little kid, Eli Lapp. I right? forgot. You, you gave I me that. I forgot about that. I've given you some good gifts over the years, man. You probably don't even have that anymore. I'm sad to say that I don't have um, I don't have that little witness. Uh, it wasn't the right animal, though, because I remember checking it. I watched the movie, and I'm like, I bought you like a sheep, and it was supposed to be a cow or vice versa. But that was the thoughts. I want to leave you with two final thoughts on The Fugitive, two little things I really loved when I watched it again. One was... Again, going back to Sykes on, on the subway scene when uh, when Kimball finally gets him and then he, he chains him to the pole. And then he's like, you missed your stop. And he smacks his head into the door. Just great. Like, just like, and it looked real too. Like, I'm not even sure if that was fake. Like, he looked like he took that actor's head and s- smacked it into the subway door. I love that. And then you referenced the fight scene earlier at the hotel at the end with Charles Nichols and, and Richard Kimball. I thought though they I thought they did a really good job with the makeup of showing how beat up those two guys were. Yeah. The blood on their faces and like just like it was believable. Why did Gerard go back to Kimball's house? Kimball's not staying at the house. Why did you feel the need to go back? So I mean, the only answer I could think is that there's a point in the movie where you start seeing Gerard saying this we might got we might have this wrong. Yep. And it's not my job to figure it out. My job is to catch this fugitive, right? Sure. But there's a time, but like and and, and and this and this is the big thing. He goes to the prosthetic lab, and it's really when he comes to the realization, like, why would a guy, if he's guilty, come back here and start doing all this fucking research with people with prosthetic limbs and stuff? But then the, the thing, that very next scene is when he chases him out of the courtroom. Yep. And, you know, he sees him in the stairwell and he's like, hey, he's like, Kimball, Richard Kimball. And like they chase, and he chases him and he starts shooting him at him through the door. This doesn't sit well with me. If you're already thinking that the guy's innocent, you unload your revolver or I don't know, guns, whatever the gun he is. Yep. He empties the gun at the fucking door and his foot's caught. And I'm like, well, are, are you shooting to stop him? Are you shooting to kill him? You already think that he's not guilty. That and he fired several rounds into the window too. So at the door, so yeah. like, it wasn't like he was just trying to get him in the ankle to slow him down. He was. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. He's like shooting him. The guy's laying on the ground. He's shooting him through the glass. I'm like, that doesn't seem right. That's a little late in the movie for that storyline for him to have taken that kind of action. That's interesting. Yeah. Why would the bad guy after you leave and he didn't even leave Helen for dead? Why would you let her make a phone call and don't tell me so she could say? Richard trying to kill me like you're beating her up, which I don't even understand why you got it. Why are you taking it out on a wife? The wife has nothing to do with McGregor or whatever it is. Why do you leave her and let her make the phone call other than it's a nice plot device? 
Because as soon as she's not making the phone call, he takes it and he hangs up the receiver. So I'm just like, I didn't understand that whole thing. Why didn't they arrest Dr. Nichols for aiding and abetting a fugitive? Isn't that against the law? I'm not a lawyer. But when they come to his office and they're like, when's the last time you saw Richard Kimball? He's like, I saw him this morning. Did you? You saw him this morning. Did you? I gave him some money. Obviously, you need to cover for him. That's not what I'm asking, doctor. But <laughs> Kimball's getting off the subway. You probably noticed this. He's getting off the subway or on the subway. He's waiting for the train. And the train pulls up. And the station that he's at is Kimball um, Belmont Station. Really? Yeah. And I did a screen capture. And I'm like, am I seeing that right? And I'm like, is that just an Easter egg? But they didn't have Easter eggs back in the early 90s, did they? Well, they clearly did with the bus number. Well, okay, that's that's fair. Don't you think it's weird that Sykes is wearing that overcoat, like the trench coat, the Morty, the Morty Seinfeld trench coat? It's like he's like you couldn't have been more obvious, right? Like he's in this big beige coat. He's got the curly hair, and he's like, "Move to the door, Doc." Like it's just why would you wear that? You look so obvious, like you look so shady. But doesn't he make the joke about what is this a trench coat convention? Like when he comes home and they're all waiting for him. What the hell is like going they got- on in here? He's all pissed off that someone broke into his place. Yeah, yeah, that guy was not the best actor in all the land. Frederick Sykes, man, that, that dude was a bad dude. Wow, this was a great conversation. So much fun talking about The Fugitive. Any other parting thoughts you got? It's a great movie. I think I think it's held up. I mean, you're a big Ford guy, obviously, and we talked about Raiders in a, in a previous episode. But what is The Fugitive like? Is that a top Ford movie for you, or is it not that high? I would say it's a top – I mean, I mean, obviously, it's top 10. Definitely, um, definitely top 10. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's – I don't know if it's top five. It might be like I would put I would put Witness over this movie. I would agree. And I know it's got, you know, it's got some sentimental thing because of mom. But I, I don't know. There was something about Witness. When I saw Witness, that was like no, no other movie. Like that whole opening scene with the murder with the kid standing on the toilet, that shit was ter- – that was terrifying. <laughs> like you're so terrified with that little Samuel, right? I mean that's like – that's terrifying. And like the whole thing was like he went from that to live with the Amish. And then I'm like, listen, look at me. I'm watching a movie about Amish people. I'm learning stuff. And I'm like, I just thought it was, yeah, I think that I witness is definitely top five. This is maybe top eight. Yeah. I mean, you got to have Empire on the list, right? You've got to have, um, I mean, Empire Strikes Back is phenomenal. Granted, that's not a Ford movie, but he's, you know, the Ford movie. It's got to be there. You got to have Raiders. You got to have Witness. For sure. I agree with that. Fugitive is there. I mean, I think Clear and Present Danger is really damn good too. Um, but Absolutely. not not a not a top five. But they're both they're both both comfortably in the back five of the top ten. I would say Frantic's not on my list. Frantic is not on the list. No, no it's not no, on the list. Not on the list. So listen, we were we referenced this movie earlier in this podcast, but you and I have decided that our next film. Um, we'll have to figure out the timing of it. Probably going to be early next year. But uh, The Hunt for Red October, how do you feel about that? Well, if you'll permit me. <laughs> if you'll permit me. And the she <laughs> – don't make me laugh. And the she will grant each man new hope as sleep brings home dreams of home. Christopher Columbus. I'm excited about Hunt for oh, Red October. God. Jude, uh, it was on last weekend uh, when I was channel surfing. I want to say Friday night in like 10 o'clock and I came across, Showtime has been playing it lately. And I, every time I come across it, I put the damn remote down and I just keep watching it. It's so good. Red October is so good. So we need to be bringing on Thompson. Or is it just you and me? I think we have to have him on. You don't bring that Navy guy on. You're going to have to pay the piper for that. And you know, we listen to your show. I think we have to have him on. Thanks for listening, everybody. Going to be back in early October with uh, my good buddy, Matthew Mills. We are going to revisit Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight, based on the Elmore Leonard novel, um, which is one of my absolute 
very favorite movies of the of the 1990s, and I would say it's probably a top 20 all-time favorite movie for me. Um, I thought George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez were never better, and we're going to talk about that. But until then, thanks for listening, everybody. Jim, it's good to see you. Have a good night. Good night. We'll see you soon, everybody. Thanks again.